Is Where it just, are you on uh, Libra? I have never understood it. I, I don't like it one bit. I don't like it because it's centralized. I don't like it because it's Facebook. I don't like it because it's, uh, you know, everybody gets to keep the float. I don't like it because it's like a debit card. I don't like it because it doesn't have any inherent value. I don't Sam, like I it because it's yeah. not. Welcome back to another Crypto Daily 3 at 3. Uh, kicking it off hot with Joe Squawk, Joe Kernan on Squawk Box this morning, talking about all the reasons he doesn't like Libra. Um, and so today we're going to start with the stablecoin wars, new information on the Libra front. Second, we're going to talk about a little bit of a Berlin Blockchain Week recap. And three, we're going to give you a little rabbit hole for your weekend to maybe dig deeper into the trade war and some big kind of macro concepts that are going around right now. But uh, back to Joe Squawk and Libra and why he doesn't like it. So the news out of, out of the Libra camp this morning was that... Um, uh, basically, the tensions are rising uh, as the EU's antitrust uh, action exploration, which we talked about earlier this week, starts to heat up. Um, it's making companies who are involved with the Libra Association nervous, as you might expect. And so reportedly, this is according to the Financial Times, three of the companies, uh, unnamed sources, unnamed companies, are reportedly... Um, uh, trying to back out or, or interested in backing out because of all this tension. Um, you know, this is to some extent non-news. It's news in the sense that it's being reported as news. The Financial Times is a is an obviously a serious publication. It got ramped up into the realm of uh, TV via Squawk Box, right? So people are talking about it, and because of that, it has um, the potential for a bit of self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Like the more that this happens, the more likely it is that these outcomes come to pass, even if it wasn't necessarily the case before. Um, however, the the it's not necessarily that something huge and new has happened since we last talked about it. It just, I think, goes to reinforce how big a path or how long a road really Facebook has in front of it as it tries to as it tries to bring this uh, this whole thing online, right? Um, Arb Doubt says, "Tired. Libra is going to die because the regulators will kill it." Wired. Libra was stillborn. Do you have any idea how hard it is to get 27 organizations with different goals, cultures, and incentives to pull their shit together and deploy code without this regulator bullshit? Um, so the point that he's making, obviously, is that uh, to the extent that this does die, you know, at birth, basically, at the hand of regulators, um, it was it was almost always doomed to that. Um, which is why people were so interested at the beginning of this week when uh, Binance announced Venus, because it's seemingly trying to do a little bit of an end run around that by getting the buy-in of companies and collaborating with them on their own localized versions of stablecoins. So stablecoin wars this week, we've had uh, Binance entering in a huge way with their Venus project, which we talked about earlier this week. We've had two now uh, Facebook kind of antitrust legislation kicking up the dust around them and having some of their Libra Association members uh, getting nervous. The third interesting uh, thing that happened in the stablecoin wars this week is this news that Tether is going to issue uh, basically a, an RMB, a yuan-backed or pegged uh, stablecoin. Um, so basically a Chinese version of Tether. Uh, Dovi reported this when it first happened. So the news came from a, um, a private chat group uh, from a, an analyst. Uh, let's pull this up from Coindesk. Um, yeah, an over-the-counter trader in China and shareholder of crypto exchange Bitfinex, which shares managers and owners with Tether, revealed the move on WeChat on Wednesday. 
saying Tether plans to call the stablecoin CNHT. Um, so again, this is kind of this is not an official announcement. There's only a little bit of information. Uh, but Dovi in that in that thread was basically saying that there's a lot to be nervous about, that the Chinese government is not going to like this. Um, she later posted the boycott of Tether's CNHT by local Chinese crypto OG has already started. This one is by Jun Du, former co-founder of Huobi, uh, owner of the biggest Chinese crypto media agency and many others. His reason is it will bring systematic risk to local Chinese crypto people and companies. Um, so all of this is uh, is just really interesting to point out where we are right now, which is that there's this incredible, uh, there's so much happening between China accelerating its central bank digital currency on the one hand, uh, Binance trying to, to make it dead simple for local or local kind of country level governments to issue their own digital currencies. You have these sort of non-state, non-sovereign uh, major competitors in the form of things like Libra. Tether is trying to compete by creating a, a Chinese denominated uh, stable coin. So a huge amount's going on in that space. Um, and I think it has more to do with just the, it's a, it clearly is a bet that the power of uh, an opportunity of digital currency is not, is going to create immense value for, for the winners in that space. So um, lots to watch here, uh, obviously an evolving story, but let's go on to number two, which is Berlin Blockchain Week. Um, so we talked about a little bit uh, about this when we talked about Snowden's uh, panel uh, earlier this week. <laughs> um, and, uh, and, and basically talked about how Web3 Summit was, uh, was all about uh, privacy and was all about um, the idea of surveillance and fighting against surveillance. And I was kind of saying that I think that to the extent that the Web3 community can really own that space and create a place for people to fight back against kind of surveillance and surveillance powers enabled by technology, that's something that could be really powerful. But since then, um, Berlin Blockchain Week obviously has a lot of events. It had Web3 Summit, uh, it had DAPCON. Now we're in the middle of ETH Berlin, uh, which includes just a, this massive, massive hackathon. Um, and yesterday, <laughs> the uh, basically the seemingly the entire crypto community was triggered by the uh, meme development panel at ETH Berlin. Um, which you can see on your screen. For those of you who are listening to this, it's Amin, the founder of Spank Chain, dressed as Amin normally does with a black Ethereum t-shirt and uh, five people dressed as furries. So full head to toe animal costumes. It looks like there's a lion, there's a bear, there's a, a leopard, there's a, a bat thing of some kind, and there's a fox, which sounded suspiciously like Vitalik. Um, and and so the 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 way that this conversation went is obviously there's a huge number of people who for them this confirmed all of their suspicions about the absurdity and irrelevance of the Ethereum community. Uh, there are others who are interested in kind of this idea of mass adoption and trying to be uh, professional and for for actual users and this being a way to isolate them. So kind of they're getting it on both sides. Meanwhile, uh, Tony Shang has wrote, this is the ideal developer community. You may not like it, but this is what peak performance looks like. And I believe that what Tony is referring to is the fact that, you know, Ethereum has been under assault or that community has been under assault for the last, I don't know, forever, but especially the last week. Uh, and this is basically, they're, they're memeing their way back. They're kind of saying like, look, 
when the going gets weird, the weird turn pro, which is a famous quote from Hunter S. Thompson. Um, and this is what it looks like. And by doing this, by owning it, they're actually casting a, casting a net and, and planting a flag and says that if you don't fit, you can come hang with us. Um, and I think that people maybe underestimate uh, just how powerful that is in terms of attracting developers. But it's kind of neither here nor there when it comes to the actual substance of this event, um, which I think really like the if you look across the, the events going on in Berlin, there's just no denying how deeply developer focused and developer centric they are. Um, you have just, you know, so Amin here again, uh, who we were just looking at, wrote about uh, it, around his DAPCON experience. He said, just wrote two Moloch DAO queries with Dune Analytics. Thanks for putting on a great workshop. And he basically talks about how he went to this workshop with this analytics uh, platform and what he was able to do with it and why it's interesting and valuable. So again, super technical stuff. Uh, Chris Hobcroft uh, basically prepared a, a list of interesting project previews for people who were um, going to the ETH Berlin and the and the kind of the, the hackathon, right? Um, uh, so, you know, just a huge amount of developer focus at this event. Um, if you're looking for kind of a, a high-level overview, Christine Kim from Coindesk was there and did this kind of long thread about everything happening. Um, and uh, and I guess the, just the, the one other thing I wanted to return to is just the sum up, uh, as we talked about the other day, of uh, just what Web3 meant and how it kicked the whole week off. So Lane uh, Reddick, an Ethereum core developer wrote, the Web3 summit feels less like a summit and more like a university. One that meets just once a year for three days. The main talks are the lectures, the professors are cypherpunks, the hackerspaces, the study groups. How do we scale this and make it permanent? Um, so anyways, there's a lot of really positive sentiment coming out of uh, these events. And I think that we're just beginning, you know, they're still ongoing. ETH Berlin is happening as we speak. Um, it'll be going on over around the weekend. Uh, but I, I'm excited to see what comes out of these, uh, what comes out of these events. Um, and, uh, and just, you know, I think that from our standpoint is trying to understand what's happening in the crypto community, these things may feel insular, right? They may feel like they're not CNN, uh, you know, squawk box worthy, but this is where a lot of what's being built is being built and iterated and experimented on. And, you know, it's a reasonable position to not care about that, to care only about the um, fundamental economic changes of Bitcoin. I think that that's a defensible spot. And uh, and certainly for myself, you know, I find uh, so much relevance and interest in that high, the highest macro level of, of what Bitcoin in particular can do. Um, but I think that to the extent that these technologies as technologies and as new approaches to other parts of the money system are going to impact things, um, a lot of those innovations may come from gatherings of weirdos, which is what this was. Um, and I mean that in, in the most complimentary way possible. But anyways, let's move on to number three now. So uh, number three, uh, <laughs> Donnie, 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 Donnie. So Donald Trump was up to his old uh, tricks today. Um, he was railing on the Fed for not doing more of what he wanted, uh, going so far as to say, my only question is, who is our bigger enemy, Jay Powell or Chairman Xi, the chairman of China? Um, uh the he went further uh, with a different thread on China. Our country has lost stupidly trillions of dollars with China over many years. They have stolen our intellectual property at a rate of hundreds of billions of dollars a year, and they want to continue. I won't let it happen. We don't need China, and frankly, would be far better off without them. Yada 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 yada, and so it goes. Right. So, um, oh, by the way, don't miss fentanyl. We talked about fentanyl yesterday, and uh, and the the crime fud. Well, fentanyl's back in the headlines. Um, 
but anyways, the the I thought that it might be interesting to kind of do something since it's Friday, uh, and since folks are you know heading into the weekend, to to propose kind of a uh, a little rabbit hole for your weekend, um, which is the uh, maybe around the trade war. So a couple of things I want to just throw out there that are consider these further reading rather than assessments. So first, um, going back to uh, Dovey again, um, she wrote Trump will make China great again, and basically goes on to argue that all of this intensity and pressure is creating a, a cauldron for China to innovate and to move faster. Um, where we've certainly seen this in the context of crypto is the fact that uh, more or that the, the Chinese government seems to be accelerating his efforts, uh, its efforts with regard to a uh, China bank digital currency, right? Um, and this it was even kind of prompted by, uh, by, by seeing what was happening in Libra. So, um, so there's a, a clearly a lot going on, uh, and Dovi has a whole thread here. Um, I think that's an interesting thing to explore more. Is Trump uh, effectively going to make China better by putting so much pressure on them? Um, second is is kind of the some of the larger political implications, um, and this is uh, I think where you know one of the things that's been happening over the last few weeks, few months, is the convergence of this macro political narrative or macro economic narrative rather and the Bitcoin narrative. Uh, and so uh, Andreas Steno Larsen says, one, Trump will continue to push forward in the Cold War 2.0. Two, the Fed will not follow suit with sufficient easing. Three, the US economy faces a high risk of recession as a result. Four, the Fed will be able to blame Trump. So basically the assessment here, and this is retweeting uh, his tweet about Jay Powell, is um, that this is effectively all a political game around re-election next year. And uh, who gets to blame whom for what? Uh, which I think is uh, is obviously nerve-wracking for, for those of us who are just living in it, which is basically everyone in the world. Um, but I thought that there was something that was interesting was uh, someone asked me, uh, do you think S2F by 100 trillion USD, that's a stock-to-flow ratio, is becoming a Bitcoin narrative now being quoted endlessly on Bloomberg, or is it a foundation for the safe haven narrative? So this is really getting at you know what we've been talking about on 3 at 3 for the last few weeks, which is this idea of Bitcoin as a safe haven. And so there's no question about why people are interested in the idea of Bitcoin as a safe haven. We saw it with uh, we're seeing it as we watch these um, seemingly kind of insane back and forth on mediums like Twitter about huge economic issues. Uh, the question obviously is, is what's driving it? And so um, the, the, the analysis that he's talking about, and this is kind of your homework for the weekend, let's call it if you want to read it, is, uh, comes from Plan B, and it's called Modeling Bitcoin's Value with Scarcity. And basically, he talks about the idea of um, the stock-to-flow ratio. So the stock being the supply of something and the flow being uh, the, the ease of, of making more of it, right? And so things like gold have a very um, uh, high stock-to-flow ratio where you could you know, make a, a huge amount more or you could significantly increase the supply of gold in terms of mining and it wouldn't impact the overall uh, it wouldn't impact the overall supply very much. Um, Bitcoin has a similar kind of scarcity where there's so much less Bitcoin being minted now as compared to what already exists uh, that it creates a really high stock to flow ratio. And so Plan B effectively takes this concept, which builds off work by Nick Sabo and uh, and was kind of uh, most best known or best popularized, I guess you would say, by Safe Dean in, uh, in the Bitcoin standard and actually models it out from where Bitcoin's 
uh, stock to flow ratio is now and what it's likely to be over time. And so this has come up in a number of kind of these uh, macro guys' recent analysis in coming over to Bitcoin. Um, most notably or most recently, uh, Rao Paul and uh, in conversation with Dan Tapiero. So they talked about Plan B specifically in this analysis specifically. And so my answer was basically that, yes, I did in fact think that this idea of kind of a stock to flow ratio was part of the the narrative driving uh, the safe haven narrative, or I guess that you know driving the safe haven uh, piece of things, but that it was it was basically a way to model out what scarcity looks like in market terms and what it might mean going forward. Um, so, anyways, I think that the the again, as I said, this is not so much a a uh, big comprehensive analysis here. It's more uh, something that I think, you know, as we see more um, bluster around the trade war, as we see more uh, just kind of insecurity and unassuredness when it comes to the footing that we're on economically, I think understanding more than just does Bitcoin number go up uh, when stocks go down on any given day, but what the fundamental idea behind this safe haven narrative is, is, is really worth um, making your own assessment around, right? It's a do your own research kind of situation and all of it's available. So I want to close with that. Uh, I think it's an interesting thing to explore for the weekend. Um, and, uh, and always, as always, keeping an eye on Hong Kong, uh, amazing images coming out of there where uh, something like 45 kilometers of people holding hands all around the city, um, organized by no central authority uh, as, as uh, Jason Choi put it, uh, you might call it, hold on, let me find the exact quote because it's too good. He, Jason Choi says, returned home from Berlin to find citizens have self-organized without one single organizer into a human chain spanning 45 kilometers. In other words, a leaderless 560 block chain. Uh, all right, guys, it's been a great week. I hope you've enjoyed it. I will catch you on Monday. Peace.